might recall, I mean, if you were here last Sunday, you probably do recall that we started in Psalm 89, which is one of the longer psalms. It's 52 verses. And I didn't quite feel up to tackling all of that in one Sunday, and so we broke it into two. And so we stopped at verse 29. We're going to resume from that same point this morning. I will tell you that the um, kind of the traction as we go with the Scripture references is not so much going to be up on the screen. I would encourage you to have the, the latter half of Psalm 89 in front of you. Uh, as we go through it, uh, initially, when I read it to you, that part will be on the screen. From there, um, Bud, if you want to try to keep up, good luck. But I, 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 won't be, uh, I won't have my feelings hurt if you, if you don't, and just trust us to open our Bibles and follow along that way. But we will uh, begin. Uh, I'm actually going to begin in verse 29. Reminding you that what has come before, we'll talk about this more, but what's come before are these repeated declarations of the steadfast love and mercy of the Lord. And this promise from God, I will establish His, that is David's, offspring forever, His throne as the days of the heavens. And then we move to verse 30. If His children, David's children, Israel in other words, If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod, their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him, that is from David, my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You've turned back the edge of his sword. You've not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have Cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. One of the remarkable things about the Christmas story is that you've got, of course, various parties involved. It's kind of how we set the tempo for uh, the candlelight, the lessons and carol service last night, through the, through the lens, if you like, or at least with, different, uh, with, with, with attention given to these various parties. You've got Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and possibly the Magi. I know there's the big, you know, was, were, they on the, were they there at the same night? Were they there two years later? Were, was there three of them? Was there 12 of them? I don't care. 
What I, what I do care about, at least for the purpose of this morning, is to say I think we're pretty safe in saying is that there at the, at the nativity of the Lord, comprehension of all of the spectacularness of what was happening probably varied. I doubt the shepherds had a really firm grasp on everything that was happening. They knew they had been told by the angels to go there, so they went. They showed up. They knew they were beholding something heavenly and glorious. And in the end, they were obedient to the directions the angels gave them. Mary and Joseph, we can only wonder at how much the two of them grasped. That's why the song, Mary, Did You Know, has become a classic, even though it was only written in the mid-80s. Because we, the readers, have only a few indications of how much they fully understood. I mean, when the shepherds show up and explain why they are there, to the best of their knowledge, Mary doesn't say much. Luke just tells us she treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. In fact, what's remarkable to me is that these weirdo astrologers from the East seemed to have a remarkable grasp on all that was going on. They knew a king had come and he was coming to rule. They were a bit, I think, buffoons to show up to the current king and say, can you give us directions to the new one? I I, I very much like the account that says that your magi might have been a bit socially awkward and, uh, you know, coming into the king's court and asking where the new one was. And I am with those who see the gift of myrrh as a burial spice almost seeming to indicate maybe they had a sense that the child had come to die. Who knows? It really bends the mind to consider how much they understood. Generally speaking, that's a reminder for you and I. It is the case with you and I that when we often, in life, do not understand the reasons behind what God is doing. We are... Uh, 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 you know, insofar as we have read our Bibles, and hey, insofar as we're confessing Presbyterians who love things like predestination, we know God's in control of all things. We know God is running this world. But the why and the ultimate direction of where He's going and, and why this and that, and especially why this particular affliction and why these questions, there's a lot that we don't understand. The distance between what God is doing and how much I understand about what He's doing is usually pretty vast. Okay? The distance between what God is doing and how much of it I understand usually pretty vast. I remember John Piper once reflecting that God is doing about a thousand things in your life right now. You're probably aware of three. Maybe. And that's actually what the second half of Psalm 89 addresses, or at least part of what it addresses, that uh, how we talk and pray and sing when we don't understand. Even when it looks really bad, and even when we are kind of, uh, kind of just going on our best understanding, best we can tell, best we can see it, best we can figure, and living and speaking and praying and even singing accordingly. You will recall from last week, just by way of reminder, refresher, the ground we covered was verses 1 to 29, and the psalm begins in verses 1 through 4, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And you see this this pairing in that psalm again and again and again. Steadfast love and faithfulness always go together in Psalm 89. 
I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. That's the, that's the aspiration. That's the goal. That God's steadfast love, the, the Hebrew word you might know is chesed, uh, and I'm with those who want to translate it covenant love, God's unmoving and immovable love for His people based on His promises. It doesn't change. That's the point. Steadfast, unmoving love. And from there, after he's declared steadfast love and faithfulness of this God who created the cosmos, he celebrates. That's basically verses 5 through 29. The mighty power of God over the sea, over all the creatures in the sea. You remember we talked about Rahab, which is probably, uh, I mean, it's, it is. Rahab is the name of a sea creature, a sea monster. And then in certain places in the Old Testament, Rahab is also symbolic of Egypt. So, you know, he, he, he brings down the monsters uh, like the ones that dwell in the sea and monsters like Egypt that threaten us. We read that righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. In other words, this God always does right. And as, as best you can tell in, in Psalm 89 by that point, the psalmist is saying that with a smile. Righteous and justice are the foundation of His throne. This God does all things right. He does all things well. He never wrongs anyone or treats them unjustly. Then he speaks of the covenant with David and with David's house. And what I told you to keep in mind last week was that the way of understanding kind of, if if you like, Old Testament theology was if God is with our king, we are okay. And and, And we know that we are connected covenantally to God because of the promises God gave to David and David's descendants. And so as long as a son of David is on the throne and we're with him and he's for us, We are under the blessing of God. We are under the protection of God. We are, you might even say, in relationship with God. So it remains for us in the new covenant, right? As long as the greater son of David sits on the throne and we are uh, alongside him, if you like, and he is for us, then what have we to fear? Where we go after that is interesting. Look at verse 30. If his children forsake my law. So remember... And I'll say more about this in a moment. But remember that kind of who is talking and who's being addressed keeps changing in the psalm. Where we are right now in verse 30 is that the psalmist is is repeating God's promises. Repeating God's... Kind of saying, Oh Lord, You said this. And then then he narrates. That's where we are. So God is saying, If David's children, verse 30, forsake My law and do not walk according to My rules... They violate my statutes, not keep my commandments. I will punish their transgression with the rod, their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love. And at this point in the psalm, you should be thinking, I bet faithfulness is next. My steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. So a warning is given here. The psalmist is going from praising God for his promises to David, which means promises to me because I'm under David's rule. And then, but there's also this warning attached. Basically, that yes, these are the promises that God gives His people. If they take those promises and trample on them and say, apparently we're God's favorites, so we can do whatever we like, and what God has told us and how God has called us to live doesn't matter, that they are going to be met with the discipline of God. And as Christians, we confess that Jesus Christ has on the cross taken all of God's wrath for us. There is no judgment to everlasting death waiting for us at the end. Rather, we are waiting 
for the day of Christ's return, we are waiting for the second advent. As those who have daylight left, we have full confidence that God does not have a judgment of condemnation waiting for us at the end. In the meanwhile, however, Christians should expect, should expect that if we choose to ignore what God has said and refuse to hear Him and refuse to hear His Word and walk in His ways and refuse to repent of our sin, we are going to, at best, have a really hard time of it. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, uh, gives us a similar idea. I'm going to turn there now. Beginning in verse 5, 6 in my notes, but I'll start in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Here's the reason for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I note in passing that is. Davidic kingship language. God calling you His Son and saying, here's, how, here's the terms of our relationship. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are... Oh, our English translation is so gentle here. You are illegitimate children. And not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Discipline is for sons. That's the point. Discipline is for sons. The absence of discipline, the absence of fatherly discipline is for the illegitimate. Those who are not sons. Okay? Now, so let me ask you, whether you're, whether you're really little in here this morning uh, or whether you're older, I bet you have had a time where you have observed a tantrum, right? A child pitching a fit or let, let's just move it, let, we'll move it on to something else. A child speaking really disrespectfully to his or her parents in a way that you hear it and you're like, oh my goodness, if I spoke that way to my parents, I would be destroyed, Right? And it's just this kind of horror that settles over you. Now, if that's ever happened to you, you should thank your mom and dad. Because what's happening in that moment is because of the discipline of your parents, you're saying, mom and dad, thanks for not letting my stupidity run so wild that I look like that. Okay? So if, if you're, if you're uh, if, I mean, again, if you're, if you're young, if you're old, and you see that sort of thing, and it's ever kind of horrified you and been just like, oh, how can you act like that? It's because of the kind discipline of your parents that you say, thanks for not letting me act like a fool and embarrass myself, because for heaven's sakes, that looks awful. Now, that's part of what the, the author to the Hebrews is getting at here. He says, he says those whom God loves, those whom he calls sons, he disciplines. They wander off the way and He brings them back and sometimes it hurts. Christians should expect that sin patterns in our lives that are not met with repentance will be met with the chastening hand of God. 
In other words, if we play with fire, we'll get burned, but it is far better to be stung by fire than consumed by it. This is one of the great kindnesses of God, that He allows your sin to have consequences. He allows sin to hurt, but not to destroy you, so that you are not utterly destroyed by it. Timothy Keller once helpfully called these moments the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us, so that we don't become slaves to sin. The point is that disobedience disobedience is punished. Disobedience is corrected by fatherly discipline. But even then, the covenant cannot be broken. If we go back to Psalm 89, and you look at verse 34. So he, he tells them about fatherly discipline, and then he says, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. I ask you again, church, just so you're just so you're walking with me, who's talking there? God. God is talking there. Thank you, Neil. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. That's really important that you understand that God is saying that part of following, part, part of following Him, part of being God's people, means we trust God to correct us when we are not acting like God's people. This is what the Puritans called a severe mercy. Now, you probably caught it, but I want you to note that verse 38 has this remarkable and rather jarring shift. I mean, it begins with like, but now, like everything's been going great according to promises, according to covenant, steadfast love and faithfulness, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. The main tone of the psalm so far has been rejoicing, celebrating God's work in history. Then in verse 38, there's this sharp, but now, but not anymore. Sort of like we have sung about the joy and glory of former days, but now, look at where we are. But now, God, look at what you have done. Remember, I I told you to keep in mind verse 34, I will not violate my covenant. That is God speaking. And then later in the same psalm, we come to verse 39. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. Now who's talking, God or the psalmist? Say it it like you know it. The psalmist, right. So this is, we've gone from narrating what God has said to where the psalmist is now expressing his perception of things. So God, we've gone from God talking, but then verse 38, the psalmist starts talking and he says, you've renounced the covenant. You've given up on us. The claim is that God has broken His Word. Now, by way of reminder, I showed you last week that the psalmist shifts his form of address. Verses 1 and 2, first person, I will sing about God. Verse 3 and 4, second person, God you have said to us. Verse 6 and 7, third person, rhetorical question, who is like the Lord? And then second person, verses 8 through 14, he asks it again, who is like you, O Lord? And then verse 15 through 17, enter in these these blessed people, people that know the festal shout, and they are singing things like verse 18, our shield belongs to Yahweh. Beginning in verse 19, Yahweh starts talking, or at least he's being quoted, about his godly one, uh, that's David, his covenant work, how this godly one will, will carry it out, will respond to it, his covenant relationship with this David or, and the sons of David. 
What I want you to notice is we're quoting Yahweh, I will not violate my covenant, but in 39 we hear the reverse, but it's no longer God being quoted. It's now the psalmist speaking of things as best he understands. This is what I like to call the problem of perception. Right? Perception, if maybe you've heard this, like the phrase, perception makes reality or perception creates reality. That's an absolute lie. I, it feels that way existentially. It feels like your perception is your reality very frequently in life. But perception does not create reality. The psalmist is singing in accordance with how he feels. Best I can tell. Lord, I look around and it looks like you've forgotten us. It looks like you've taken your covenant and thrown it on the ground and spit on it. And you can hear him kind of asking, where where have those former days gone? As one preacher put it, why do I have to read about the wonderful works of God in books? Why can't I read about them in the newspapers? Why, why, why Why can't I be telling those stories now? You can kind of hear a tone of impatience here. If you look ahead, oh, let me find it. Oh, yeah, you go down to verse 36. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, the place of death? The psalmist is saying, God, you might have eternity. I've only got a few minutes left. We're going to die soon. What, what, so just let's pause there for a minute. What can you learn from that? A God-fearing prayer does not mean a prayer that has no opinions on the matter at hand or its urgency. I'm going to say that again. A God-fearing prayer is not a prayer with no opinions on the matter, on whatever's happening. The fear of the Lord is not ashamed of honesty before God about our perceptions because, I guess you could say somewhat ironically, because we're standing on the firm foundation of covenant promises. Do you see? It's this weird paradox that in order, to, in order to lift his eyes to heaven and say, Lord, you've broken your covenant, it requires the covenant to talk to God like that. And so the fear of the Lord is not ashamed. It's built upon the rock of covenant promises. How do we respond when we find ourselves in times that really confuse us? First of all, directly. Speak honestly about it. That's what the psalmist does. Vocalize that longing. I want to be out of this. I want to know the good times. I want to know the sweetness of of the times that were going on before. And you can be honest about the problem of perception. What's happening there, problem of perception, what's happening, I think, for the psalmist is he is mistaking the forms of God's promises for the substance of God's promises. The forms of God's promises for the substance of His promises. And, And what I mean by that, look at the text. He says, you've renounced the covenant, verse 39. What's his evidence for that? Verse 40, you've breached the walls. Stronghold is in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. You've exalted the right hand of of his foes, David's foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've turned back the edge of his sword. You've not made him stand in battle. And then uh, in verse 45, you've covered him with shame. In other words, 
Jerusalem is suffering. David's armies are suffering. The people are suffering. We are being put under the feet of our enemies rather than the reverse. So this doesn't look like the songs of victory that we sang before. This doesn't look like you keeping your promises. It doesn't look like how we thought it would look. You see, I mean, for, for the Old Testament saints, it was, it was almost impossible for them to separate the truthfulness of God's promises with this, the very stability of Jerusalem. And that's actually what the prophets start talking about. They're like, Jerusalem is coming down because God keeps His word. Not because He's failing to. And so it often seemed to them that God was not keeping His promises, when in fact He was. The forms were falling away, but the substance was still there. And so I would, on, on that note, I would just invite you today to think about what, what might be the forms of God's promises that have vanished before your eyes and cause your heart to be tempted to say maybe He's not keeping His promises anymore. Because the form of them is not kind of kept how I thought it would. Maybe it is the state of your nation. Right? And you're just saying, Lord, will you not lead these people back to you? Maybe it is the state of the church, nationally or globally. Lord, will you not have mercy on your church and give them repentance for their hypocrisy? Do we have to endure another headline that brings us shame? Right? Verse 45, you have cut short the days of his youth. You've covered his head with shame. Lord, will you not give integrity and steadfastness and accountability to our leaders? It is possible to do that, by the way. I know sometimes, at least my heart is tempted to this. I'm assuming some of you are also tempted to it as well. And that is the kind of cynicism that just says, you know what? People don't like Jesus. People don't like Christians. So let's be honest. You know, having any semblance of like a reputation that is honorable is not possible. So... Let's just lean into that and set fire to the whole thing because we cannot. We ca- there is no hope of establishing any kind of reputation for integrity or honesty or whatever. D- did you know that in the Reformation in France, uh, you know, obviously uh, a company led by John Calvin in Geneva and all that, you, you might have heard the term Huguenot before, referring to the, uh, uh, the French Protestants that were uh, persecuted quite a lot. Uh, but a, but a, a phrase, a statement developed in France and wherever they immigrated to at the time called honest as a Huguenot. Right? So if someone was honest as a Huguenot, you knew they were trustworthy. It's like, wow, they built a whole reputation of like business integrity such that honest as a Huguenot became a slogan. Right? And so, Lord, will you not give integrity and steadfastness and accountability to your church and to her leaders? Will you not bless us with strong fathers and joyful mothers? Will you not help us to love one another from the heart? Lord, the walls of your church have been torn down. Our land is full of evil. Our churches are often full of secret sin, contention, and careless divorce, and fear of each other. Children being afraid of adults. Adults being distant from children. Young people lied to, husbands and wives isolated. Lord, will you not rebuild our walls? Will you not restore our families? Will you not bless your people with strong elders? Will you not equip her with wise and faithful deacons? So, so how are we called to sing? 
What encouragement is given to us in this psalm and, hey, at Christmas? Christian, you're called to remember that it is not your job to figure out what God is doing. Okay? This is so important. Because a doctrine has developed, I think it's unique to, I hope it's unique to American evangelicalism. I hope we haven't exported it. But it is this idea that, like, God's full of mystery, what He's doing really hurts, but if I figure out why, He'll stop. Okay? You can hear this come through and sometimes way people, they'll, they'll say, I don't know what God is doing, but I hope I figure it out soon so that I can have relief. Now, what you might just be saying there is like, I hope it starts making sense, even if it keeps going on. And that, I, I mean, it's, that's Psalm 89. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that like the, the affliction that God has given you is some sort of logic puzzle for you to solve and then the game is over so you can go to the next level. It is not your job to figure out what God is doing. Your job is to praise Him in spite of how much you don't understand about your own circumstances. And in the midst, you can be honest about what it seems like to you. God tends not to save or rescue in ways that we expect. Amen? God writes stories that we really don't expect. He writes stories with mangers and with crosses for heaven's sakes. His ways are not like our ways. Now, I want to show you something toward the end. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. With which your enemies mock, O Lord. With which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And then, (laughs) sudden turn, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. (sighs) Do what? Now, you might, when you read that, you might just think of it as a kind of afterthought. Since this is, if you've got your Bible open, you might notice that Psalm 90 in most English translations begins with book 4 because the, the Psalter is divided up into five sections or books. And the concluding verse of each book is, Blessed be the Lord forever and the twofold Amen, Amen and Amen. So, okay, that's just the pattern, right? That's just kind of what we do. Well... That, that's maybe part of it, but I, I think we should think a bit more carefully than that. I think you should picture the psalmist pouring out his lament, pouring out his complaint, his confusion, his frustration, his kind of view of things as best he can tell. And then he worships at the end anyway. And this is a hard lesson for us to learn and I, I do not stand before you as one who says he, he knows how to live it out in every situation that calls for it. But your hardships call for your amens. Your, your hardships and your afflictions call for your worship. Is that, is that all they call for? Well, no. There's 51 verses of other stuff there. But they do call for your amens. Affliction and hardship, it it calls for your gratitude in the midst of it. The Psalms give us speech and songs where complaint and plea and longing and lament coexist right alongside praise, exaltation, repeated hope, stubborn gladness. Is that being disingenuous or fake? Well, no. Fake would be, I'm going to sing about how happy I am when I really am miserable inside and have not tasted joy since last Christmas but I'm happy, right? That would be fake. That would be false. 
crying out to God and then finishing with hopeful praise is not being fake. It's being faithful. And so what we see in the psalm is that there is joy. There's this happy recounting of God's mighty works. And there's also a how long, O Lord. There's even a frankly stated doubt about God keeping His promises. Like, Lord, I I think You've dismantled this whole covenant. Even after He quoted God saying God would never do that. Now what a marvelous hope that is. That our how long is taken seriously... And yet our doubt is not made trustworthy. That our how long is taken seriously, but our doubt is not given the final word. The psalmist's doubt and struggle is real and honest, but it's not given final authority. And so, here's what Psalm 89 has for us this morning and for this Christmas. I know that doubt right now is Doubt and, and deconstruction are popular buzzwords in religious circles. The, the narrative goes something like this, that, uh, that those who think of themselves as faithful, they don't have doubts because they don't have courage, right? They're, they're scared to ask questions of their faith. And, and doubters are the ones that have courage because they have the strength to question what they've been taught. Now, it certainly is true that an unexamined faith is not worth having but you should also have the courage to doubt your doubts. To question the narratives you have designed privately in your own corners. To look underneath them and see the why behind your why. The psalmist's hope, as we covered last week, is that God gave promises to David. David, who was called the firstborn king of Israel, looking forward to another firstborn king who would indeed be the firstborn from the dead, thereby answering the psalmist's fears. Remember how short my time is. Who can deliver my soul from the power of Sheol, from the power of death? Do you hear the longing for Christ? All I've got is this life and then death. What is the answer? The answer is coming in Bethlehem. The psalmist is waiting for a Davidic king who will conquer and silence the threat of death. He's waiting for one who will equip God's people with a new song to say whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And so the Davidic king we are given is Jesus Christ Himself. Great David's greater son. The highest of all the kings of the earth. The one who rules over all the kings of the earth. And we, have, we can have confidence then that everything that happens in our lives is fulfilling the good purposes of our king. Jesus shows us the timing of God. That God's timing is just and right in both the first coming and the second. In other words, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, Peter says. At the right time, Jesus brings life to the dead. He fulfills the covenant by making certain certain that His people can forever confess His steadfast, enduring, never-stopping covenant Love and faithfulness. So what do you do with all this? I trust there have been places where 
just in your own hearing and in your own life and experience, some of this has made sense to you and might have given you something to take home and meditate on this week and put into action within the walls of your own home. If you're still hunting for something, I offer you this. Be honest about your questions. Be honest about your perceptions and have the maturity to know that your perceptions don't create realities. Speak out in prayer your frustrations and your fears. There's a difference between reading about God and crying out to God. A lot of times we can become really skilled at reading about God. But we lack the courage to cry out to God. But our immortality, our life forever and ever, amen, has not cursed us with, with spiritual numbness. The, the, the fact that we're not afraid of death doesn't just mean like, oh, okay, we're going to live forever, so uh, you know, none of this matters, and uh, we don't have to feel anything. Immortality has not cursed us with numbness, but we are made able to say with the psalmist, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. This is the great gift before us. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does He sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth and goodwill to men. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.